Welcome to the Editor's Monthly Podcast of AJPH. This is Alfredo Morabia. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and we are June 6, 2017. This issue of AJPH has a section on chemical risk assessment. In this podcast, I discuss with Associate Editor Michael Greenberg, who is also a Distinguished Professor and Associate Dean of the Faculty at Rutgers University, and with Dr. Maureen Green, who is a Senior Science Advisor for the Office of Research and Development of the Environmental Protection Agency. What these two interviews show is that for chemical risk assessment, there is the need to assemble large teams of scientists from a wide range of domains of expertise and give them the intellectual space to tackle the often complex questions that need to be solved to protect our health from the environmental risks. A task that only a federal agency such as EPA can handle. I'm now calling Associate Editor Greenberg. Mike. Yes, hi. This is Alfredo. Can you hear me? Absolutely, and very well. The, the voice is excellent. Okay, Martin is standing here with me. He, he just got me through this. Okay. Yes. Thanks, Martin. So, um, Mike, tell me, what is risk assessment? Right, it's uh, the first stage to evaluate how dangerous a particular situation may be. And essentially it asks and tries to answer three questions. What are some hazardous events that can occur? Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood of those events occurring? And if they do occur, what are the consequences? So what were the situation in which uh, this notion of risk assessment and these questions were developed? For, for which purpose exactly? It was developed simultaneously to address several issues in the United States before any other place. First, it was developed because there was concern about the performance of nuclear reactors. Second, it was developed because there was concern about chemical carcinogens and there needed to be a way of evaluating those risks. And third, it was developed, remember all those hazardous waste sites that we have in the United States. So all of those occurred roughly in the 70s and in, in early 1980s. I see. And, and who does this risk assessment? Well, thousands of people across the United States some are done in government, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Energy, and there's a lot of work done by consultants who specializes in risk assessment and in risk management. What, what type of expertise do these people have? Everything from mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics like, like my expertise, to economics, psychology. It is a very, very much the classical multidisciplinary subject. Epidemiology? Oh, absolutely. It's a key one, yes. Uh, you forgot it, Mike. I mean... I must have been a Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what type of data do these experts use in order to do this risk assessment? Well, the article that we have in the journal really does open things up, but... 
typically what you do is use some epidemiological data and whatever animal experimental data you can get. Uh, and what has been missing most often is data about exposure and the impacts of those exposures. And this is where the article that we're publishing uh, really can make a huge difference. And uh, so what's the quality of the data that we have? Since we, we have animal data, which may be of uh, great quality, but we don't have much about uh, human exposure. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's best if we use one of our favorite examples in the journal, which is lead. When you're worried about lead exposure, what you want to do is get a multi-view estimate of the exposure situation. So first you want to know how many people are exposed at what level and from what sources. And what is possible now that was certainly not possible and historically has not been possible is for EPA and for other agencies to tie their databases together. So we can now try to get whatever data we can that's uh, been collected about individual personal exposures to lead. We can also pull it with it, monitoring data on indoor environments that exist now for many places. So we can have a look and see which kinds of places have more exposure within the home. Now we have a much big monitoring net outside the home. And what this big data approach that EPA is pushing will allow us to do is to integrate those data sets. And it sounds easy, but historically has rarely ever been done. And so when we're doing the risk assessment, we're lacking some data completely, and we have to use default estimates. This allows us to use whatever data we've collected to come up with much better estimates. Mm -hmm. But uh, are we technologically ready in the domain of risk assessment to use this uh, big data? You know, there's a lot of skepticism uh, about how able we are to use it. Well, I'd like to respond to that in a slightly different tone, which is to say that it's all of this risk assessment's done now anyway. A lot of it's required by law. And consequently, if we have better data, we should access that better data. It's not going to be perfect, but it's a lot better than using professional judgment to make estimates or filling in defaults. So we're, we're ready and it'll just improve over time as more adequate data are collected and made available to analysts. Yeah, that makes sense. And what's the role of the Environmental Protection Agency in this? You, you mentioned it among right. others, but uh, does it have a specific role to play? Well, those federal agencies all have had major roles to play and they have worked with each other because a lot of the risk assessment people have been similarly trained. So, but in the case of EPA, the Office of Research and Development, ORD, uh, which is headed by a, a number of people that we well know through American Public Health Association, they've been head of ORD and in their roles they have pushed very hard for more risk assessment and more risk uh, management to be done scientifically within the agency. Mm -hmm. And so does it have a, a, um, a ruling role, I mean a regulating role? What, what's the exact role of EPA compared to other organisms or agencies? So EPA has protocols that it has to use when it, for example, issues regulations about new substances. 
and risk assessment as would be and risk management would be two of the key tools that they would use before those regulations would be issued. I see. And is therefore uh, risk analysis threatened by the new administration and the new EPA director? What do you think? Yes, I mean, ultimately it has to be. If you withdraw a huge amount of the scientific budget from the Office of Research and Development, what you are essentially doing is not permitting data to be gathered, to be circulated, and not giving scientists an opportunity within EPA or outside of EPA to look at the data. So it really retards the entire process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's very worrisome. Mike... Thank you very much for your time and for these answers. Can I ask, ask and add one point? Yes, a key piece of this as part of our journal agenda has always been environmental justice. And it is the environmental justice communities that most benefit from having availability of all of these different data sets because they are the ones most likely to suffer from multiple exposures. So the need for risk assessment, risk management, connects very closely with environmental justice. Yeah, that's, that's very important. Thank you for adding that. Whoa, You're welcome. Have a good day, Mike. Oh, yeah. yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Whatever you do, whatever you do, Professor Greenberg just mentioned the importance of the Office of Research and Development of the EPA. So let's call Dr. Maureen Green. She works in Washington, D.C. at EPA headquarters. I began to ask her, what is the Office of Research and Development to which she belongs? So the Office of Research and Development is, um, we like to say, sort of the science arm or maybe the science brain of the agency. So we are responsible for a large amount of the research that supports the public health decision making at the agency. So we have a pretty broad portfolio looking at um, clean air, clean water, um, safe and healthy communities, homeland security, and things like chemical risk assessment. And Chemical risk assessment, that's the topic of the paper you published in this issue of the journal. What is chemical risk assessment? So chemical risk assessment is how we, we analyze the potential effects of, of chemical exposure in the environment. So we, it's a process where we analyze the available data and synthesize what we learn from that to have a better understanding of the potential health outcomes from exposure to that chemical. So Maureen, give me some examples of those chemicals that are assessed. So Maureen, give me some examples of those chemicals that are assessed. Sure. So anything you, you might see in the environment is something we would, we would want to assess um, to see what potential health outcomes or effect on the environment it might have. So the ones I've worked on most recently include asbestos, um, which, uh, as, as you know, is... Um, found in the environment naturally, but also used commercially in some cases, not as much anymore, in part because of the chemical risk assessments that have been done in the past. Um, so we look to see what we can find out as far as what would be a, a, a safe dose, if that exists, or what would be the doses of these chemicals that we would need to be concerned about people being exposed to. And what are chemicals we are particularly concerned about now, right now? Oh, uh, well, I mean, asbestos is still a concern. As I said, it's, it's naturally occurring, so we find it um, as people are building more and, and 
disturbing the environment, we can find it naturally, particularly out west. Uh, things like formaldehyde, which is used very broadly, is still a concern. We are finding that um, there are chemicals in our soil and water that are very persistent in, in the environment, things like perfluoroalkylated substances or PFAS substances. Um, are in the environment now, and they're, they're a concern as to what level um, we're finding. We're, so we're doing some work on analytical methods to determine what levels are in the environment, but also trying to understand what the potential effects would be being exposed to those levels. I understand. And so in your paper, uh, you uh, contrast the traditional approach to chemical risk assessment to a more public health-oriented. What was the traditional approach so traditionally, we, we tend to look at this chemical risk assessment in terms of a chemical by chemical effect. So we would analyze all the data we could find on a chemical like asbestos or PFAS or formaldehyde, something like that, and look at the potential um, effects of exposure either through inhalation, oral, dermal, um, and, and look in multiple species, whatever the data would be available for that one specific chemical. Often those studies don't show the effects of that chemical in relation to other chemicals in the environment, and we know we're exposed to more than one thing at a time. So, so this was its main limitation, the fact that you looked at one chemical at a time? Uh, in some cases, it, the, a lot of the traditional risk assessments, because we were very focused on looking at um, a specific chemical, we would, we would use a lot of laboratory animal studies, and they would use fairly high doses to measure, um, to, to be able to try and determine an effect in those studies. So those studies were designed to look at mechanisms and effects from a specific chemical. So it's, while it's a limitation for what we're looking forward at right now with, with this study, with this um, proposed approach, it also gives us, it still is valuable to give us a lot of information about mechanisms and potential health effects from exposure. It just doesn't um, necessarily reflect the real life exposures we see in the environment now, where it would be more than one chemical at a time, and the doses might be lower than what you might see in some of those traditional studies. And so your colleagues and you are proposing a, a public health approach, and uh, how would this approach actually uh, differ from the current one? So what we're proposing is to look at it a little bit more um, holistically. So we would look from a public health sort of standpoint, we would take a health outcome of interest and look and see what chemicals or even what sort of non-chemical stressors could be leading to that health outcome. So one of the examples or the main example on the paper we talk about is cardiovascular disease. We know there are a lot of causative factors related to the cardiovascular disease and looking at taking this public health approach to chemical risk assessment, we wouldn't just be looking for, you know, levels of PM. We would also be looking at other potential um, chemical exposures, other sources, and then the effect of either behavior or nutrition or some of these other factors that we know may play a role in, in the eventual outcome, the health outcome of cardiovascular disease. But how would you collect all this data and put it together? So part of our approach was to... to make sure we're very inclusive and we're integrating all sorts of data streams. So we would be looking not only at traditional toxicology studies and epidemiology, but some of the new advances that we see um, in both fields, but also looking at some new alternative methods, like seeing what we could find out about um, mechanisms from doing computational toxicology or looking a little bit more at some of the impact of non-chemical stressors or even behavior on the eventual health outcome that we see. 
That that may be a, a little bit a, a difficult question, but uh, do we have any idea of what's the respective uh, role of behavior and, and chemicals in, in the etiology of uh, cardiovascular diseases? You're right. It is a difficult uh, question to answer. I don't know that we would easily be able to pinpoint to one thing or another. Um, and I think one of the one of the challenges that we might see with this approach is when you look at something like that. Um, Traditionally, we look at chemical risk assessment for chemicals that we are regulating or able to regulate. Something like behavior is not something that would fall necessarily in those categories. Something like nutrition wouldn't necessarily be something that would be regulated. So we'll have to be very careful about how we um, look at this and how we parse out what is the regulated, the fraction of the effect that is caused by the regulated, regulated chemical. And so when you talk about PM, uh, particulate matter, it means that you also deal with air pollution. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Is there anything you'd like to add, Maureen? Part of the, the work that we did for this paper and working with this um, group was we really wanted to highlight that this is a, a systematic approach to going forward, that there's a way to try to take into account all these different potential factors that could lead to these more complex health outcomes that we see in populations and that some of that um, information may be missed if we go, if we continue just doing the traditional approach. That we're not trying to re replace the traditional approach, but that this could be very complementary to that to help inform some of these really complex diseases and how we can try and, you know, better protect uh, or improve protection of public health. Maureen, well, thank, thank you. you very much. And, uh, All right. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Whatever you do, remember your health. All of the articles mentioned in this podcast are available in open access. The Rhythm and Blues Groove is composed by Francis Jacob and features Kofu the Wonderman, a Nigerian singer who lives in New York City. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at HAPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us on our brand new website at hph.org. Remember your health. Whatever you do.